0: Welcome to the SCA Lectures podcast series, brought to you by OLAM Specialty Coffee, connecting roasters to the finest specialty green coffees. The following is a talk presented live at the 2017 Global Specialty Coffee Expo, the largest annual gathering of specialty coffee professionals.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm Tracy Ging. I'm one of the co-founders of The Coffee Woman. And um, just real quickly, housekeeping, um, this is interpreted, so if you, haven't, if you need that and you haven't grabbed a he- headset, um, it's, it should be in the back. Um, and I want to start off real briefly and talk about why we're talking about this. Um, so here are the founding fathers of, of uh, this is a photo provided by the National Coffee Association, but certainly if you <laughs> were to look at the International Coffee Organization, the Colombian Coffee Federation, any of the big institutions, business boards, this is pretty much what you're gonna see. And this is from 1911, I believe. Um, does that sound right? Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanna show you what progress looks like. So, <laughs> this is 2017. One, one, one person of color three women. Half Over half, half the population is women. Over half of the MBAs graduating in the US are women. And this is where we're at. And so this is why we're talking about this. I mean, we see this over and over again. We saw it yesterday on the competition floor. We saw six men advance in a competition. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> And so we're going to talk about it until we find some solutions. So, you know, what we know is we know that people in our industry that are talented and have intellect to offer are are just dealing with this amount of bullshit day in and day out. Y'all better
0: buckle up.
1: You know And all of these subtle and not so subtle barriers, you know they, they, they create real barriers of, to opportunity for folks, and they burden the people that experience them, and we see evidence we see evidence of it also affects how, how women and people of color and people who don 't gender, gender identify how they progress or don 't progress um, so something is limiting opportunities, and this isn 't about not creating opportunities for white men. We just, we just think they have enough opportunities right now. Um, and they've had them for centuries. So this isn't about limiting those opportunities, it's just about making sure that we remove barriers for other people that deserve opportunities as well. So with that introduction, I would like the panelists to introduce themselves and then I'm gonna introduce Michelle, who is our lead moderator at the end. But Phyllis, do you mind starting? Sure. Uh, I'm Phyllis Johnson.
2: It's thank you to those of you who were brave enough to come in the room today. Um, I've been in coffee for 18 years. I started a small green coffee import company um, run by my husband and I. Uh, I am that one woman of color on that board. Um, I'd like to add they've had two women of color in their 106-year history. So... um, yes i'm very excited to to be in this conversation and to be here today with you
3: hey my name's meister um And uh, I currently work for Cafe Imports, um, but I've been in coffee for 17 years doing um, barista work and cafe management all the way through barista training, co-director of coffee. Um, I've done green coffee sales, communications. I'm also um, a writer and a journalist, and I've done a lot of writing both for industry stuff and also outside of the industry, um, both about coffee and not about coffee. So a little bit of everything. And yes, I do have just one name. Just kidding. Um, if you're really nice, maybe I'll tell you my other name.
4: <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm Liz. Uh, I am the director of retail for Irving Farm in New York, in New York City. Um, I've worked in coffee for six years, and I'm also newly elected to the um Barista Guild of America Executive Council.
5: My name is Tamika, and um, I'm in New York City. I currently work uh, with the Genuine Origin um, coffee project, so that's in importing. Um, but like my sir, I've done cafe management, account management, education um, with a few different roasters.
6: Um, and I'm also really thrilled to be here today. Hi, I'm Jen. I've been in coffee for about seven years. I work for myself. I'm a writer, photographer, and marketer for coffee companies. I'm also a journalist sometimes. Oh, sorry. And I'm also uh, vice president of um, the Bay Area coffee community.
1: (laughs) So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce the lead moderator, Michelle Johnson, who is a creative marketing consultant and also the founder of The Chocolate Barista. She's a community organizer in Phoenix, um, the a 2016, uh, 2016 Sprudgy Award winner. Um, and I just have to say, just from having this experience, I've, I've been a long time admirer by having this opportunity to work with her. So thoughtful, so insightful, and this woman gets stuff done. Um, So if you're not already following her on Twitter, she's worth a follow. follow. Um, And I'll hand it over to you now. Hello, everybody. (laughs) It's,
0: It's really awesome to see how many people are in here. And like Phyllis said, you all are very brave because... Y'all are not gonna leave comfortable. We're not here to coddle anybody. We're not here to make you feel good. This is not a bounce house. We're walking in here with needle-like, needle spike necklaces and cleats, and we're about to burst some bubbles. So, with <laughs> that being said, like Tracy said earlier, um, the board of directors for the National Coffee Association is a bunch of white men and there has been since some progression that has happened but that progression that we've seen have only been of white women Um, and that is what white feminism is which is you know this is the real our culture is based mostly solely off of white normativity cis normativity and heteronormativity and that's where the progression and where a lot of feminism lies is centered around that. Um, That is completely ignoring everyone else in the world who does not fall into that. Um, And that is what we're going to talk a lot about today, is intersectionality, uh, which was a term coined by Dr. Kimberly uh, Crenshaw. And it is talking about, you know, there's this multi-dimensions of discrimination and oppression based off of everyone outside of those normativities. So me as a black woman, I deal with both sexism and racism and that is a blockage for me. If I were queer, that would be another intersection. If I were disabled, that would be another intersection. And it keeps going and there are so many different ways that it manifests. So I'd like to start the conversation um, by asking, why is intersectionality important in the coffee industry and how do you see it manifest within our industry?
5: Anybody, I'll start. <laughs> um, so, intersectionality is in, is important, particularly in coffee, because we view ourselves as a really progressive industry. And so, anybody that bills themselves as particularly progressive is actually a little bit more in danger of um, perpetuating. Um, sexism or racism or classism because you're, you're kind of patting yourself on the back already. Coffee does a lot of that. Um, specialty coffee does a lot of that. Um, and the truth is there's not really an understanding of the way in which intersecting identities affects the way in which you move through the world. Um, for example, we've heard, I'm sure you've all heard about how women, it used to be 72 cents, and now women are making 70, what, women are making seventy seven cents on the dollar. I bet you 've heard that you probably haven 't heard that what that black women make sixty five cents on the dollar and that Hispanic women make close to half what uh, what uh, white men make and two thirds of what white women are making right so if we stop the conversation at um, women not realizing that not all women experience uh, the world in the same way, um, then it becomes really dangerous, because I don't think anybody in this room would say that uh, racism doesn't exist and sexism doesn't exist, but because we bill ourselves as progressive, it's really hard to get people to examine the ways in which they personally contribute to and benefit from those systems. And that's not, uh, like Michelle said, and I say this all the time, um, I'm not even as a black woman in America, with things as they are, I inhabit spaces of privilege, like everyone inhabits spaces of privilege, almost. So it's not for, everyone sort of needs to check their privilege. It's not just for cis, uh, het, white guys. And I think that's why it's really important in coffee because we get stuck there and we pat ourselves on the back when in fact we're all contributing to systems that don't work fairly for everyone.
2: Well, I think intersectionality is important in the coffee industry because I look at it from a global perspective. And we see that uh, brown and black hands pick beans. uh, White hands trade beans. And so there's just a disparity in the global coffee industry. It goes well beyond your cafe. It goes well beyond your roasting plant. It's global. And so I think that that's why we have to look at Coffee, very specific, specifically, and how it affects us.
0: Well, <clears throat> I'd like to ask about some of your personal experiences um, about how intersectionality has affected you in coffee. Um, how your intersections have either blocked or gotten you further.
4: I can, I can start. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm half Korean and I'm half white. And I don't know how many folks here identify in this kind of mixed race, biracial category. But it is weird because I am both not Asian enough to be Asian to a lot of Asian people um, or anyone really. And I'm also not white enough. So I occupy this interesting space where I am both a person of color and also not. And I have white people... Um, often say racist things to me to, like, make me, like, to kind of use me to um, make them feel better, like, affirm them. So they'll, like, test off their, their they'll test their kind of weird racist stuff on me. And they kind of, I guess they figure that if it gets a pass from me, then they can, they're, like, a good person still. And that's such a strange space to occupy. (laughs) And then, um, and so I often have to deal with that kind of stuff. And that's, I think, been, I, I, when I worked in the cafes, I would have um, customers say really weird things. I also get a lot of like, oh, your parents did such a good job on you. And I'm like, my parents didn't have me. At, like, I'm some kind of show dog. I'm, you know, mixed race people don't exist because we have, like, great genes. That's not how it works. We're here because of, just like anyone else. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's that's been one of my experiences with intersectionality is, is like, occupying a particularly weird space racially.
3: Speaking of particularly weird spaces. Um, so I have, obviously, a strangely gender-neutral name, I guess you might consider. Because I do go by Meister, which is my last name. Um, and I have a first name. And that uh, I just happen to have a first name that lots of other women have. And so it's always become easier for me to just go by my last name. So I work in green coffee sales, which is... Um, you know, when people romanticize like getting into the coffee industry and they think that it's all like traveling and exotic and you're going to Origin all these things, like I sit in front of a desk m- like 90% of my time and most of the business that I do is conducted over email. And I can't tell you how many times I've emailed with a customer. a a hundred times over the course of several months and the tone of our conversation is very genial. We're obviously on the same page. We're obviously speaking the same language. They're asking me questions. They're respecting my advice. And then we get on the phone and they hear my voice and the, the relationship changes because they immediately realize that I'm not a man. I have actually had a, uh, someone, when I answered the phone and said, you know, Cafe Imports, this is Meister. They said, oh my God, I expected you to be a 45 year old man. And it, uh, the conversation, like our relationship was changed. It was just different. And how do you do business effectively in an environment where you're constantly wondering if someone would treat you differently or talk to you differently if they knew what you were? Like, I don't even know what I am, but, uh, you know, that's not, this isn't the conversation that I'm having with my customers, so.
6: I'm too short. Okay. Um, So I work in uh, the digital space, and um, my name is, I mean, it's pretty feminine. Uh, It's also really common, and it's probably, like, my last name Chen is, I think, like, the fifth most popular Chinese last name out there. Uh, So I had one customer, client, sorry, customer of a client email me um, and ask, um, hey, do you know this one person with this last name Chen in China Uh, that I'm working with? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. Um, I named a statistic because it's a really common name. Uh, And also, I'm not from China. I'm actually born in the U.S., uh, and uh, I told him this, um, and he said, oh, I didn't mean to offend, I'm just looking to adopt a baby from China,
4: <laughs>
6: and I just wanted to like, connect with you, because you have a Chinese name. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, <my> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, um, so I'm, I'm kind of direct in email, uh, which also it goes against um, a lot of uh, what women are told to be in email. Uh, So I ignored the part where he said I didn't mean to offend because I'm like I'm not here to make you feel better. Uh, That wasn't a good reason. I don't care where you're adopting a baby. That's great. Um, And this unfortunate thing is that they're doing work in China um, to have uh, children be uh, adopted out um, into the U.S., like doing great nonprofit work. And it's a very awkward situation. Um, They're also in the coffee industry. (laughs) Um,
5: One way in which, so I've done a lot of work I've done I do a lot of work like out in the world, and so before working for genuine origin, so now I do spend more time in front of the computer uh, but before working for genuine origin, I worked as an account manager and educator for counterculture coffee in New York City um, and I have always had to very consciously mm, think about the ways in which people react to me in cafe spaces the first time I'm there Um, and especially when I was there as an educator Um, I've had tons of people ask me if I even like coffee in the middle of a lab, I'm instructing a lab and after I've had someone ask me if I liked, do you even like do you even drink coffee? And I'm like do you think, look around this room do you, how many black women Instructors and account managers, do you know? Do you think I could be in this room if I didn't like coffee? How would I end up here even? Um, <laughs> and I had tons of people register, surprised that I was the person that was their account manager. Um, I always had to reference, uh, before that I managed the Ace Hotel in Stumptown, uh, New York City, and I always had to reference my resume. Um, and the thing is, people who do this, people who require me to... Uh, to reach into my past and, and sort of uh, say the things that I've done, they don't even know that they're doing it. And so I have to think about the way that they've perceived me, think about a way in which I can ca- very casually drop into the uh, conversation that I'm, in fact, a very qualified coffee professional uh, by by uh, saying, no, Stumptown vouched for me and also counterculture vouches for me. And so that's the way. Uh, that's the way that I've had to, I've had to qualify myself in every new coffee space always. And it's like there are tons of guys who walk in <clears throat> to cafes and say, I work in coffee. And people are like, oh, yeah? What about this thing? And ask me this thing. And what about this other thing? Um, and I, and it never fails. I've never, meet, I've never met with that. I almost always have to do the extra work to think about the ideas that people have about blackness and the ideas that people have about womanhood and the way that those intersect and then act very uh, Um, specifically and casually to counteract all of those things and so when you think about the burden of emotional work it is it's a lot it's exhausting to have to do but there's no getting around it I do it or I or I'm not successful and it's more important to me to be in the space Um, but I do often think about how much I could get done um, if I didn't have to free up the brain space to, to do that, if I could go straight to having a person taking me seriously, it's like I'm already effective. How much more effective could I be mm-hmm. if I didn't have to do this stuff? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the fact of the matter is, it truly takes away from the time and energy that we could be spending. Focusing on coffee. Like, we're coffee professionals. And I, like, argue with people all the time. They'll say, like, oh, let's not make this conversation political. Let's just focus on the coffee. I would love nothing more than to just focus on coffee. Like, I would love nothing more than, than to talk about water chemistry and, like, cryogenics. Like, that shit's cool. I want to be able to be in those conversations. But there are barriers and there are blockades that are coming up. Because people, like, it's it's... Because, you know, this is a lot of what I talk about, I'm the go-to now, and people will want to only come up to me and only talk about that. And, like, yes, I would love to engage with that, but I'm also at a specialty coffee expo, and I want to learn about coffee. I want to talk to people about coffee. But at the same time, like, we feel the need to have to bring up these things because they keep happening, and no one is letting us, you know kind of walk through, walk forward so that we can continue to advance our careers. Um, you wanted to add something?
2: To yeah, this? I just wanted to add something briefly. Can you imagine pulling up a, t- a chair to a cupping table with your largest customer and instead of asking about the samples, your question with, with do you think that black people are dumber? Or do you think white people are smarter than black people? That's the question. It's not about the samples. It's not about coffee. And then there's a pause. And then there's a statement that says, "No, I really do need you to answer that." Jesus Christ. What's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> Dude,
0: well, <laughs> uh, so I want to get a little bit more into the uh, the conversation about barriers and kind of like. Put into perspective for everyone what these barriers look like for different people in different spaces? Because the coffee supply chain is, like you said, is global. It goes all the way from the cafe all the way to, you know, producing and the farm. So in these different aspects, what are some of the different barriers that um, people are having to deal with that are keeping them from moving forward?
5: Um, so there's a, a proximity... Uh, so i don 't think in general, people think about proximity to whiteness. Uh, people of color have to think about proximity to whiteness, and actually, we do so so automatically it 's like ingrained in us uh, so i'm i am i uh, 'm also an immigrant, so my family's from Belize um, and there are all kinds of cultures in Belize, but my family speaks english but i 'm also latina and if you think i ever Get uh, you think if anyone believes me, even when I say when I say that, uh, and in all of those cultures, there is a hierarchy of proximity to whiteness that we think about constantly, um, and I think a large barrier for people of color and especially from people of varying like uh, education, educational privilege is proximity to white normativity in all the ways, right? So like I think a big barrier. Uh, the people of color in coffee have lots, have lots of things in common. Usually, it's approximated whiteness. So what that looks like for me is, like, I went to boarding school in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I talk like this, right? And, like, if I spoke... I don't know if you guys are familiar with Cardi B. She's from the Bronx. <laughs> there are not Cardi Bs in coffee, right? I think really hard about the people of color you know in coffee, and I'm not, like, this is not an accent I'm putting on. This is the way that I speak English, right? But i couldn't i can't i could not be cardi b and b where i am Mm -hmm. and so like to me in general proximity to whiteness is is a barrier and and what that means and so like the expectations even that people have for baristas like that they have a college degree that they speak in a way that people are are um comfortable with that they dress in a certain way uh for me, that is the the biggest barrier uh, for women and people of color is an expectation of what's right, and nobody even thinks about what's right, what they like in a candidate, what they resonate with, and essentially, what you're resonating with is like is proximity to white normativity. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot to think about. Even this is gonna sound silly. Uh, there's like beauty privilege. Like, be real how many people of the people of color who work in coffee, you probably think they probably look nice, right? Because they can't not. (laughs) And what does look nice mean? And what's the standard for looking nice? And where do we draw that from? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and so it is about proximity to whiteness that erects real barriers for people, for me.
3: I think that proximity to whiteness is also really important to remember that You know, specialty coffee is a really global, well, coffee, obviously, but specialty coffee um, is a global, it's a global industry, and the people of color that we interact with in ways that lift them up or give them empowerment or, you know, we sort of uh, even treat them as rock stars. They're producers. They're people who grow coffee and to work on farms and we take their picture and we, uh, you know, we get so excited to meet them and this is amazing and we don't treat people of color in cafes the same, like even remotely with the same degree of respect or even consider, I mean, just consider the fact that they are uh, worthy candidate it it 's that proximity to white culture and compartmentalization that creates a safe person of color in one environment and a person of color that doesn 't get the same respect or attention or uh, appreciation in another environment like that 's a real division of power and of i mean that 's the that is that is white supremacy it, like all over right and it's the foundation of the way that we do business in the industry.
2: Are you, are you kind of talking about, like, a coffee person that has a lot of friends from Africa, but they can't name one African-American friend? <laughs> is that what you're talking about?
4: I also want to add to this kind of same point. I think in addition to just because the topic is intersectionality, is in addition to proximity to whiteness, I think there's also... Um, proximity to uh, performing like gender in a particular way that I think is and I think like Tamika even talking about beauty privilege being a part of this um, like I I'm really lucky because I I have the wonderful um, opportunity to do all of the hiring for the eight cafes that we have in in New York City or the seven cafes in New York City um, and I get to make sure I get to make sure that my staff look diverse there's not I mean not that I'm fulfilling quotas necessarily, but that I really get to meet people at kind of their face value. Um, And it's hard because I look at the types of customer complaints I get, and it's interesting. And I would love to like maybe one day do an actual for real study on this, but I um, have noticed that the complaints I tend to get the most are often um, my staff of color and my staff who are gender nonconforming. And I think it's because customers get particularly weird about someone that doesn't fit their expectation of what they are supposed to be so because they can't place them because they're you know they're not smiling enough it's and it's so unsettling to me and it's something that like i think needs to be talked about more because i I mean I'm sometimes at a loss for how to talk about it other than to s- simply try and tell my staff that I'm there for them and I'm gonna support them and they're not gonna get fired because a customer's mad at them for not smiling enough. But like mm-hmm. that is that is real. I get very i probably have had maybe one complaint in all the years that I've worked in this um, about a about a white male staff like white male cis staff member.
5: And think about two. Oh no go ahead. Uh, think about the way too um, in which like people 's biases affect that, so if you don 't think that I think very carefully about the way that I present anger <laughs> or and, and justified too, right? Really, any emotion at all. Uh, I was, uh, I will never forget, I was in a meeting a few years ago. I was in a meeting um, and we were talking about how a vendor was wasting our money by sending us incorrect stuff all the time and charging us for it, and it was a hassle to stay on top of it. And I brought that up, I presented it in that way, and I was told, don't get emotional. Or one day I was talking about something that someone did that was inappropriate, and they said, Are you mad? Are you angry? And I'm like, people, white men have sat in this meeting and raised their voice, raised their voices at me. And if I raise my voice back, who do you think they would remember? Do you think I ever respond in anger? I don't, I can't, even if it's justified, right? And so like, attached to what Liz says, people have unrealistic expectations of people of color and the way in which they're supposed to manage their humanity. And, and, and the ways in which they should interact with them. Um, I mean, Jim Crow was 60, was what? It's 19. I can't do math. But it ended in the 60s. I was going to tell you what. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that. Not and be correct uh, um, But it ended in the 60s. That's like 50 years ago. Almost 60, right? The U.S. was founded like, over what they came here in the 1600s. Like, are you kidding me? We're talking about centuries of a legacy in which people of color are expected to be subservient, and you, and people think that it's been fixed in 50 years. It's unrealistic. And then you talk about the the history of colonization, which totally plays into the way in which coffee uh, got around the world, in the way that it was harvested. Uh, it just it's unrealistic to expect that that stuff would have changed in 50 years. And if you have a staff member that's a person of color and you not, you're not thinking actively about how to support them and protect them from that stuff, then you're doing them a disservice. Because you're not giving respect to the fact that there are pe- there, those biases still exist they're to be found in almost everyone, unless you're actively unlearning them. And even then, they will still be there. And so if you don't protect that person of color, then do you think they'll stay? Even if you don't fire them If they don't feel support for issues that you don't understand or you can't deal with, why would they stay? That's why coffee looks the way that it does, because it has to be like your burning passion to ignore all that stuff and to be not very supportive and to have people not understand and continue to push forward anyway.
6: Uh, I think when we're talking about barriers, I I don't have anything that's uh, obtuse in terms of racial or gendered remarks. That's really rare for me. Um, I think my biggest barrier is just microaggressions that happen. And something that white men don't usually understand is when you get a comment, an off comment to you, you get this weird sensation in your body and in your brain of, did that just happen? Uh, did he really just say that to me? And um, is it because I'm Asian? Is it because I'm I'm a woman? Is it because I'm both? And uh, you kind of go down that that line, like ruling out all the things. Like, oh, maybe I'm just uh, you know I look like a tourist, or um, I'm. I don't look like a coffee professional for what they think a coffee professional looks like. Um, and then you eventually get down to the point where enough of these things have happened and you're like, okay, that was gendered, that was racialized. Um, and I'm going to give an example. So uh, this is my third year at Expo in a booth. Um, my client, One of my clients is Akaya, the scale company. And I manage all of their global marketing, all of their social media, the photography, the writing, the product launches. Um, So uh, two years ago, we launched the Lunar, um, which most people know about now. Uh, But when it launched, um, uh, this is an international trade show. So when it launched, uh, we had like a huge rush to the booth. And um, it was sold out in 30 minutes. Uh, but during this like entire weekend, it was a crowded booth. I, like, You could not get away. Um, and it was constantly masses of people, 20 people around a 10 by 10 <laughs> booth. Um, I'm also introverted, so it's exhausting. But uh, the point here is that um, I've been to enough of these, just it's just the three, launching new products over and over again, talking about them, um, that... I, if you didn't know me working for the company, I get people um, ignoring me when I'm in the booth, uh, when, when the lunar launch, and I'm totally capable of explaining all of the technicalities because part of my job is reading about scale research um, and the manual and dissecting it down for consumers to understand. Um, And so I can explain everything to you, uh, but if you don't want to hear it from me, then I can't do anything for you. Like, Mm -hmm. there would be groups of men who really wanted to learn about the lunar, um, except we had three other men in the booth and they would wait around to talk to them. Um, And I did write about this in an article and uh, someone told me yesterday that uh, a different coffee professional took it very personally. and thought I was talking about him, which is really hilarious, I think. Of course. (laughs) Um, A white man. Very popular, known white man, Um, which I'm not going to name. But uh, I was not talking about him if he's listening to this later in the (laughs) podcast. I was talking about, like, 40 other people who also did the same thing. So the, the thing is that Like, these things happen and I didn't realize um, until like two years in that it was because I'm Asian and a woman and I don't look like your idea of someone who can explain technical details to you, Uh, and that was kind of a jarring effect. And it's very unconscious um, sometimes too, uh, which is really difficult to combat.
0: I want to unpack that a little bit more the the person who took that personal um, in this setting right now we're calling these things out and y'all can't do anything about it which is awesome but you know we have these we try and have these conversations with people one on one or they'll come to us and like want us to you know do that emotional labor to kind of talk to them through these things but they're there barriers and trying to break down those barriers and it comes in the form of people taking it personally when it's not about you stop making it about you uh, and defensiveness so I want to talk more about why is it why are those things so difficult for people to get past
5: so uh part of it um this is purely my opinion uh but i do think a lot of it is that the people who we need to have these conversations with are not used to being criticized like so let's be real people feel so comfortable giving me unasked for critique mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh <laughs> And it also means that when I make a mistake, and when I use like um, cis privilege to like oppress non-conforming people, when they still have something to say about it, the only thing I feel is embarrassed, which is the right feeling. So like, if I haven't learned all that I need to learn to not be oppressive to somebody, the only reaction for me should be embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Feeling a little uncomfortable is fine, but but someone like me, I feel uncomfortable often, right? And I have to push through that discomfort. And it's not necessarily me; it's that people, it's the way that people in spaces react to me if they don't know me that makes me feel uncomfortable. But when you always feel comfortable, if someone has a critique for you, then it's going to be natural for you to be defensive uh, because you don't. It's it's not correct. I'm definitely not excusing it uh, because every everyone. Uh, no one should be impervious to critique and especially if, if what someone is telling you is that the way in which you're living your life is making it harder for them to live theirs I have no space for, for anyone's defensiveness but I, I think that's why it happens it's because people don't um, are not used to being critiqued um, and are also not used to feeling uncomfortable and so when when the shoe is on the other foot then it's then it, the instant reaction is like defensiveness which is which is the worst reaction it's fine to be uncomfortable other pe- there are people around you who are living uncomfortably because you are so comfortable that's uncomfortable and it should feel that way um and you have to be able to sit with that discomfort but that's why i think people get defensive
3: Yeah, the discomfort with being just uncomfortable is like, is real, is real. And then it comes into the discomfort wars, like who's more uncomfortable right now, the person doing the calling out or the person being called out. And I I mean, the number of times that I have been told, you know, you'd catch more flies with honey, like that kind of a response where like, if you were nicer about this, you know, it would be easier for me to accept what you were saying. Like, I think that's a response that people of color and women get all of the time when we're, you know, pointing out something that might be offensive or pointing out something that's problematic language or behavior. Um, you know, when when, that, that same question of like, Oh, if you didn't act so mad about it, maybe we could actually have a conversation. It's like, well, I'm really sorry that I'm mad, but, um, uh, but it, it does come down to like, why are we all so afraid of being uncomfortable with each other? Like, what, what's the worst thing that happens? If you are the kind of person who is interested in having a conversation, interested in having a real engagement and growing as a person, then just talk to the person about why you feel uncomfortable. Like, why is it so hard for me to just say, I'm, this is a, I, you know, apologize for something or to just admit like, this is really hard. We don't just acknowledge the fact that it's really hard, but I mean, Women and people of color acknowledge all the time that it's really hard. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. I
4: love that you brought that up. I, there was, I think, I know there are some people in this room who were witness to this. But um, recently, there was um, an article circulating on the internet about how um, men are not conditioned to apologize um, and women are, and it was really interesting because I saw I had a few friends on on my Facebook who posted this article. And it was so fascinating how, in probably every instant in which someone posted this, there was some guy that had to come in there and be like, "Well, not all men do that," or "This is that's a generalization." And it's like, I don't. uh, One of the hardest barriers I think in terms of having these kinds of conversations is not just the defensiveness, but also the like insistence that we get that we like hand out gold stars for you being like a bear minimum like decent human being yes. like <laughs> what like wh- like great job like pat on the back I'm so glad that you're not a horrible racist or horribly sexist or whatever it is like <laughs> let's move on let's have a productive conversation but I feel like a lot of times when I try and engage conversations with people I have to spend like the first portion of that conversation like patting someone on the back and I'm I'm tired of doing that.
5: Yeah, and I also think it's important for people to realize that it's, you can benefit from a structure by not actively participating in it, right? And so what ends up happening is people go, well, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. Um, But it doesn't even matter. Because this is not about you, it's definitely not about anyone's feelings. Um, It's actually about the fact that these are structural inequalities and they will remain structural inequalities whether you're trying to be a good white person or a good man. It doesn't matter. It's not about you. And so that person, even if you are trying to be a good person, that person would still have whoever is being oppressed is still encountering this on a structural level. Um, and that has to do with world history, and nothing to do with this like thirty-year-old coffee bro. It just—it's not about you. <laughs> remove yourself. Remove yourself from the equation, except in examining the ways in which you participate in and benefit from these things. So we live in a patriarchal society. If you are a man and you—and you're breathing. You benefit. That's the end. You don't have to do anything to get the benefit. That's not how it works. And so then think of, even if you're nice to ladies, think about all the women that you've potentially gotten jobs over. You benefited in that situation. That wasn't your choice because it's not about... It's not just about your choices. It's about structural inequality. And that does not look like saying, not me. And then think, too, Mm -hmm. is that it's hurtful for women and people of color to deal with these things because we are people. And so that means that every time we buck up against something, if we say something and we have a sharp tone, and you take issue with my tone, but not the thing that I've encountered thousands of times, then, then you are a privileged person, because it's more important to you that I'm, that I'm kind to you than, than that people stop oppressing me. And even think about, like, just thinking about it from that angle. And so a lot of what we run into is, well, I don't like the way that you said that, and it's like, interesting, I don't like living in a white supremacist society, but yet, here we are.
1: <laughs> So, believe it or not, we are down to our last two or three minutes. What? (laughs) Already? I'll break the rules. We'll go over. But I I, I do want to interject. In preparation, we had some really interesting conversation about how to move this into action. And, like, what would you... Like to um, impart to the audience in terms of what they can take away and what they can do. And while you're thinking of your answers, I'm going to start with one. If you're white, notice how much space you take up and how much space others take up or how much you yield to others. I swear to God, this didn't happen on purpose. We just didn't have any space. But if you're white, sit behind the podium. Take the seat behind the podium. It does not hurt you, it does not hurt your career, it does not interfere with your goals or anything that you want to do to sit down and shut up every now and then and yield the space. And that's not, that was harsher than I meant it, but <laughs> maybe, not really, um, but, but it's more of like, just be aware, like you, you can do all the things you want to do in the world without taking up all the space all the time and watch that as you go out in terms of, of, of how space is occupied. I'm going to sit behind the podium.
2: <laughs> Tracy, um, thank you. Thank you for, for creating this space. Um, I, I really would like to say that. Uh, one thing I'd like to leave you with, uh, marching orders, ask questions. Ask questions. My husband always says, if I had a handful of marbles and they were different colors and they represented different types of people, if I were to drop those marbles on the floor, it is unstatistically possible that all the white marbles would segregate, coalesce, into the best paying jobs. And every other marble, every other marble would just be out there trying to fend for itself. It's not, it's not normal, folks. It's just not normal. And it is very taxing. It, it is very taxing. So start asking questions. And if you're afraid of asking questions in open sessions, go home and start asking yourself questions in the mirror. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to learn someone else's history. You know That's a privilege to you. Understand that there's some space that's made. The pie gets bigger when you embrace diversity and, and inclusion in people like you. You're, you're not going to suffer a loss in this si- situation. Your life is going to be empowered. You're going to know more. You're going to learn more. You know What would it have been like if the Pepsi folks had had, had a different perspective at the table? You know, collaborate, collaborate. You know, this is not something that you have to sit around and say. You know, we got to have better coffee than a roaster down the street, or we got this new Guatemalan or chef. It's not competitive. Figure it out, and then go tell the roaster down the street. Say this is how we developed a program that was more inclusive of people that that just didn't look all the same or think all the same. Farm that out, go tell someone. Or if you see someone making it happen, ask them to share their information with you. How did you do it? Don't say, well, I tried it, I tried it. Ask yourself, what, how, why am I not connected so that I can tap into that community and get the best of what they have? Not say, Tamika, you're different. You're just different, you're different. I don't know what it is, but you're different. That's your problem, Tamika's not different. And one thing I want to say, before I take up too much time, is (laughs) get yourself. Get yourself and get your people. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean research. There's so much information out there. Mm
5: -hmm.
2: I can't give you historical facts on who I am. No one at this table can do that.
0: How's she going to pay me?
2: It's incredibly taxing. It's more taxing than I can tell you. Um, I know you work hard. Your dad worked hard. Your mom worked hard. But hard work has not been the same reward for everybody. Understand that. Understand that. And educate yourself. We cannot, we can't educate you. Your ignorance is taxing. And so we need you to fully, fully engage. Fully engage. Be Stand flat-footed and ready to learn, to grow, to feel uncomfortable. That's the only way we're all going to get through this.
4: I just want to add. My thing kind of, I think, jumps off of that. I want to give an example of something that I think is really important because I think... And this goes back to the conversation about defensiveness and recognizing that no one is perfect. No one, everyone in this room, everyone on the stage has privilege and issues that they need to unpack and constantly work on. Um, And so, in the the spirit of of transparency, when I was, I went to an all women's college. And um, when I was in college, it was my first year, probably my first day, I encountered the fact that there were transgender students at my school. And I, my reaction was kind of, what? Like, what, like why? And, and I, that was a, totally the wrong reaction to have. And, but that was an important moment for me, and I think that's an important moment for, I think, everyone to, to know that they've had those moments. Because if you haven't had that moment, that's a problem. Um, and so, but then by the time I got to, through college, I ended up writing my senior thesis on challenges to the gender binary and why those are such a big problem and to me that was important for that was an important project for me to take on one because i didn't ask anyone to do that work for me i did it myself um, and it's an issue that didn't personally affect me, which is the other thing that I think is really important: is that I see a lot of people who will champion issues that are kind of, and this I think goes also back to like the conversation about proximity to whiteness. If you only care about issues because you know someone, or because you know your partner is this, or you know that, that's also a problem. You can't only care about racism because your friend is black. You can't only care about. Um, you know transgender issues because your brother is transgender whatever it is you have I mean again intersectionality it's it's the whole package it's everything
0: so not to oh yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. (laughs) so not to you know excuse any of there's still a lot of stuff that needs to happen a lot more progression that needs to happen but in the past, you know, few years of these issues coming to light within the industry, there have been some positive things that have happened. Like there has been progression in multiple different ways, so I'd like to hear from you all in the different ways that you've seen the positive effects of this. If you've seen any positive effects <laughs> or what would you like to see if you haven't? Like that's fine too.
6: Good. I
0: really want to something yeah, go. The for. Years, mm-hmm. go for which me. is mm-hmm. I feel like that's
7: really
8: mm-hmm.
5: Michelle is like that. one of my favorite people on the planet. I'm gonna push back though here, <laughs> only because I agree that good things have happened, but I don't. That gets back to this thing where we 're patting ourselves on the back mm-hmm. for like the mm-hmm. the minuscule amount of progress and mm-hmm. and it has been minuscule mm-hmm. so like that 's the only that 's the only mm-hmm. reason I just want to push back that on that a little bit, not because i don 't think it 's good for us to talk about things that have happened and mm-hmm. it 's certainly changing, but we 're also here still because it 's really, really taxing and honestly i 'll say. Um, I will say that I think that the good things that I've noticed happened have come from the ground up. Like I don't even think that they're, I don't think that they're even happening at the behest of the people who need to hear this talk. They're happening because you're in like Phoenix doing like crazy amounts of community organizing and that came from you. And it's been coming from us so it doesn't need to come from us. (laughs) And and I'll say even the genderless um, bathrooms those have come from the push of people who are gender non-conforming. That it doesn't come from the top up, so that work, that work is still being done by people on the ground floor, and that's the thing that's taxing. And so for me, to like allude to what Tracy is saying, what's really important to me is that everybody uh, examine the ways in which uh, they oppress other people Because everyone, that's work. Because what this is, as lovey-dovey as it sounds, whenever I say that, oh, you need to love and value everyone the same, but that's the truth. Right? Because right now there are hierarchical worths in society. And as long as there are hierarchical worths of, of what people are worth and what people who speak this way are worth this and people who look this way are worth this and people who are beautiful are worth this, then we're never going to be able to engage um, in, a, in an equal society. But all that needs to happen is like work on the individual level to disengage with like anti-womanhood anti-blackness, anti-non-gender conforming, and that's all stuff that resides in everyone. The, everyone has work to do, the difference is the amount and the and the privilege that you exert. So like, sure, as a black woman and as an immigrant woman, I have, oh, oh, sorry. I had a internal anti-American blackness that I had to deal with cause, because you, a lot of times, second generation, uh, Immigrants are treated better, so I am, as an immigrant black woman, is, am, are treated better and had way more privileges than pe- actually people who grew up in the States, which is maybe not something that if you're not in those communities, you might not know that because okay. I'm like a special black person. And sure, I'm special because everybody's special right <laughs> but, but that's not a, uh, but it's a reason that people have used to give me preferential treatment to other black people and so I had my own anti-blackness but there's only so much power that I have to exert that over other black people so the work that I have to do is important and I'm always doing it but white men the work that you have to do is more important because you exert more power and you need to do it more and you have more and so everyone <laughs> Everyone that has power needs to examine it, and if, and if you're more oppressive, then you need to do that work faster, and it's more important. Yep. <laughs> so That's what I want to leave people with.
2: I, I just wanted to say that um, I'm from a different generation at this table, obviously, and I think that to kind of take a look to say uh, what we have accomplished, it is important. Uh, when Tracy showed the first uh, slide of the founding fathers of the National Co- Coffee Association, and they were all bearded white men, probably immigrants, a lot of them. Uh, and then she showed another slide. And the biggest change in those slides were there were color pictures. Um, but then there, there, were, there were three women. And, you know, I can get really um, upset or, you know, discouraged by that. But you know what? I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by that, because even though there might be three women, even though I might be the second woman of color to ever sit at that table. With what I bring to the table, the ideas, the thoughts that I bring to the table, if there is an opportunity to change the mind of one person sitting at that table, just one, then that's progress. And I think we have to really focus on where progress is being made. Sometimes it's not made where we have our sights focused. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the NCA conference and we had a speaker. And the woman was talking about gender equity and all of these things. And everybody was fixated on the important men sitting at the table. And there was a waiter there. And he looked at me, and he was just emotional, and he said, I can't believe that you can take corporations, and they actually think about women and children, and the well-being of this society. And he was just, you know, he was putting the plates down, and I said, there right there is the success. The success was in the person who was serving us the meal. It wasn't in the most important men sitting at the table. And yes, there is power there, but you have to start where you can. So I would like to say that I'm very proud to be a part of an industry, that we can have this conversation, and you can be here, and you can listen, and you're not so offended that you get up and leave. So I, I'm grateful, and I see I see progress, and I am hopeful.
5: Well, and that's not to say that I don't value it. I'm not saying yeah. that. Yeah, I, like, I was like, I want to be really clear. I want to be really clear. not that I don't value it, but I do want to be really careful, yeah that we're not patting ourselves on the back because there are still people. We need you. Yeah, and there's still people, there are still people who feel the, economic, the emotional burden of it and it's heavy and it's a lot. And so I want us to be thinking about those people and to be moving urgently because they need that and it's important.: Yeah, but yes sure.
6: I see positivity in the online and in-person conversations that have come out in the last couple of years. Uh, So when you talk about something, when you share something that really stinks to share, uh, it's very uncomfortable and it's very anxiety inducing. Uh, Other people will read it and talk about it. Uh, Maybe not to you, like that guy. Um, (laughs) um, I'm not mad about this, (laughs) (laughs) just confused, Uh, but uh, people have these conversations and they'll talk through it Um, and I think awareness is important because then it spreads out into the industry and when um, when an instance happens of uh, harassment or um, microaggressions, then the people who are aware of it can then step in And handle it. Because sometimes you don't want to be the person pointing it out. Because you're not the one in power. Mm -hmm. Um, But if a white man was like, hey, that was kind of a dumb remark. Why would you say that? Uh, That would be using their power to better the industry. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. while that hasn't happened yet here, um, I hope it will. And I can see that happening soon
0: sure awesome
6: but don't get comfortable with that progress
5: <laughs> yeah, no, <don't. laughs>
0: there's still much more to do and we still have a very very long way to go but it's possible it's doable and we can get there and it starts here it starts in this room it starts the conversations that you have leaving this room like if you like we've been saying if you have that privilege use it and use it for good like we're tired <laughs> i'm so tired but you know it's it's so necessary um because i i just can't imagine like how much further the industry could go how much more innovation that could be happening if the the people who are like us in this industry didn't have to spend so much of our time you know justifying our humanity and our you know our resume and having to you know just go through the life that we have to go through. Like we could be much further along and we can get there. It is possible. Um, so I want to thank you all so, so much. This has been a really, really awesome conversation. Um, and we do still, we have some time. So if there are any questions, um, feel free there, some mics in the audience.
8: Oh, I didn't even see them. Yeah. (laughs) So I have a comment and a story. Um, There's also age discrimination, obviously. I'm older than most of you in the room. But when I opened my coffee shop a few years ago, I had to take a gas station and uh, construct it into a coffee shop. And I went to City Hall. We had our first meeting, and I was told uh, that they were not kind to small businesses. I said, I'm an optimist to a fault. So I'm thinking that's not really going to happen, and it happened and i i was asking them questions and they were just like getting hostile toward toward me and toward my partners um i and i couldn't figure out why and finally my husband kicked me under the table like shut up and so i just had to stop right there which i didn't want to do i didn't want to back down but i had to and from that moment on i every time i went to city hall i kept thinking that was a mistake and it's going to be okay this time. It was never okay. So I had to think, okay, how can I reinvent this so I can actually effect a change? Well, my face-to-face was not working, and they were extremely rude, and they were, it it was like, if if I had time to tell you, you wouldn't even believe it. But I decided I'd start writing letters and I did so I'd write a letter full of emotion and I was angry and then I would go back read it take out that emotion and make it factual so that they would listen to me and I started sending letters to the mayor to the the um, the guy in charge of the city council to everybody I could think of and I just keep writing letters and say Factually, what had happened at this meeting, what had happened at that meeting, and it probably took me a year and a half longer than it should—a year and a half—before I could actually get the the approval to open my coffee shop. That was huge, but it finally happened. And I decided along the way that I was going to be willing to sacrifice my. Um, Uh, getting that open in time i I would sacrifice myself essentially so that people on down the road wouldn't have to go through that sometimes you have to do that sometimes you have to use a different method like i said mine was letters so long story short at the end of that time the city council changed some of their city code and that is huge so they changed city code it assisted me tremendously and after two and a half years Somebody sat down and actually had a conversation with me that was civil. It took two and a half years, but I didn't give up. And I encourage you don't give up, use whatever works. Those letters worked. Um, I testified before the task force on small business. I had applied to be on the committee, but of course they pre-selected everybody and so I wasn't a part of that. Just don't give up, don't give up and just, um, it was wonderful that finally something did happen. So please don't give up and use what works best.
9: Hi, um, my name is Melissa and I'm Brown. I own a coffee company in uh, the Chicagoland area. And um, I had this interesting, I mean, I think a lot of people might experience this, but I'm, I I'm—I always feel like I'm the token brown female um, at a table um, where everyone's the majority and I'm just that one person. Um, and so I have this interesting experience with our city where I um, definitely feel like that token brown female entrepreneur that's kind of like interesting and brings other Um, Hopefully, it's bringing other people like from the city to our suburb just by being like a face in some way, shape, or form. And so, I had this interesting experience of um, having a lot of support from our city. Our city is actually giving us $75,000 to build out a roastery in their town. Like, they're very excited for what we're doing. But at the same time, um, I often find that, like, I don't even know if they notice that I'm brown um, or female or anything of that matter because. Um, I'll be talking to some city officials, and they'll be talking up our business and how great it is. And then, at the next moment, they'll be talking about how our competitor had a brown um, barista, and that the drink really sucked because he wasn't like the white male hardworking barista that they're used to. Literally said that to me, and I'm just like, you know, that I'm like brown and female, right? Like this is this is like not uh, not obvious. Um, and so I find myself consistently in this experience in which I'm not sure if I'm perpetuating the problem by not speaking out more, like I wish I was braver. And I want to be, but I have this hard divide of like, well the city's funding so much of what we're doing and we're doing it inside of our shop, inside of our mission and experience. But I find myself trying to find that balance of being given power, but wanting to utilize it for my internal community, but not necessarily knowing how to affect change on the larger systems of power who are giving me the power to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, so I'm just curious as to, like, what you guys would think about finding that line between the two, because Mm -hmm. in one way, I feel like I'm making some really great changes. In other ways, I feel like I'm perpetuating the problem. Um, I think... Uh, that's a great
5: question, actually, because I'm sure it's something that everybody on this panel has run into before. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't feel a responsibility to fix like everything. There are things that are going to be like within your control. I probably would have said something because that's me, <laughs> but I don't expect everyone to have that same right. reaction, and nor are you responsible for it. And that's why I push so hard about always remembering how much work there is to do, because honestly, you shouldn't have been the one to say something. Like another a white guy in that room should have been like, "Hey, man, that's bullshit." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if he does it, what's going to happen to him? Nothing, literally nothing. If you do it, you you're at risk of losing seventy five thousand dollars in funding that you need. Yeah. And so you shouldn't feel responsible. If you feel comfortable having the conversation and you can be sure that it won't affect you negatively, then I would do it. But it depends on it. Always depends on where you where you're at, because you're probably gonna employ people in your business that look like that barista that he was talking shit about and what you can do in that is more important than, uh, than fighting that one guy on that comment and are you going to change his mind in that moment no but can you change your community with your roastering yeah and so it's like uh, it's tough and that's the thing that people should think about that's a excuse me can I have your name Melissa 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 has to think about that she has to think whether, should I make this decision, should I not make that this decision? And think of how many times you've not had to think about that if you're not a, a brown person or a woman. You probably never had to say, should I say this thing? Should I stop this guy and, and not say that when he said something that is offensive to me personally? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of slights that we have to ignore. I don't think you were wrong for ignoring that, um, because I think what you will do in your community and, and existing in this space is more important mm-hmm. than maybe, it, than definitely than losing that funding.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: And like, my, my dream for the world is that you never have to think about that. And like, that's an internal thing. I just wanna to touch on one more thing. Uh, why did that guy think that? Why did that guy think that? Because of people who were in this room. Hmm. Who hires people? to work in coffee shops. That guy didn't pull that out of out of thin air. Mm-hmm. We're responsible for him thinking that Baristas look a certain way and that's why the coffee was bad. And so it's never it's not even just one thing. There are like a thousand things at, at play here, but people like us are responsible for the for the idea that he had about what people who prepare coffee well look like.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, Hi, my name's Nazi. I work, um, I'm the general manager of a cafe in DC, and managing is very new to me. I just started um, a few months ago, and I was in a completely different industry before. Um, And one of kind of the immediate responsibilities, of course, was hiring and training staff. Um, And I've been very lucky because the two owners who are two white Midwestern males have been very open and accepting, and one of their priorities is having diversity behind the bar. Both, you know, color, gender, all of that. Um, And so we're constantly thinking about ways that we can encourage that. But, of course, the biggest challenge is just getting those people in the door, getting those applications to us initially, because, of course, the majority of applications we get are white males. Um, And so I think one of the tools that we've used is just having diversity behind the bar already. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that brings in more applications, and more women are encouraged to come in and apply. And also me as a GM, because I'm sitting at the table and I'm interviewing next to the owner, and I'm asking those questions. And um, when we're arguing about people to hire, I am standing up for the woman or the person of color who doesn't necessarily fit the mold. But do you all have, especially the individual from Stumptown, I forget your name. Do you all have tactics or tools that you can use to encourage that and to bring in more diversity in the cafe? Um, Whether it's, you know, even when I'm scheduling, I'm thinking, like, am I gonna have three white males who are wearing Warby Parkers and (laughs) Carhartt vests behind the bar, like, no, let me change this around and make sure that there's some women in the cafe at all times or some people of color in the cafe. Um, Do you have other tools like that when it comes to hiring that can just, you know, step one, kind of change this conversation for us do you want to
3: go well i have a um i i definitely want to hear other people's answer to this question but i think one thing that we neglect when we talk about creating diversity behind the counter is the significance of the fact that you're asking for diversity behind the counter to serve a mostly white customer base and one way to make it more appealing for someone who's a person of color or a woman to come into work at a shop is to make those people comfortable in the shops to begin with, and that raises a lot of questions about the places that we're opening coffee shops, um, the opportunities that we're taking to, um, you know, develop neighborhoods or to bring coffee shops of a certain type to a community that doesn't have them before, and. ostracizing the community that already exists there as a, as customers, um, which is going to create tension between, you know, the people on either side of the counter. So I would say that one way of encouraging diversity behind the counter is to to encourage diversity. However, that means, yeah, in the, in the shop as an environment, I think, um, for the consumers, for the people who work there.
4: Yeah, I, I second that. And I think there's there's a lot of culture building that I think can happen at a company level that hopefully people in this room have opportunities to do. Um, for example, one thing that I did when I, I we do like a new hire orientation for our staff, and um, one thing I ask, or it's not even something that's required, but we um, encourage people, if they have them, to state uh, personal gender pronouns. Um, and it's something that a lot of people don't even... No, they've never had that conversation before. So I just do it, even though, you know, for me, I, I present and identify in a way that people are comfortable with, um, but I've, I feel like I can take charge of having that kind of conversation and, and even and kind of create um, a space where people can have that conversation uh, in a way that feels comfortable, I hope. Um, so that's I think that's, like a, that's such a good point, is that there's so many different ways that you can build in culturally a space where people from different backgrounds can feel uh, comfortable. Um, And then the other thing that I would also add is um, one thing that I've observed in the, I probably have hired hundreds of people at this point in my career. um, And I have realized that a lot of people who submit applications, like blindly, um, tend to be very confident white men (laughs) um, who have these ridiculous resumes sometimes. Um, I'm a big proponent of trying to hire people from random places. I know a lot of people think this is crazy, and I've had people give me weird looks when I say this. I love hiring people from Craigslist. I have some amazing staff members that I hired from Craigslist. They had zero, they didn't have a coffee background, but they worked hard and they showed up. And a lot of them ended up becoming lead baristas and managers and just don't, I mean, yeah, you'll wade through a lot of nonsense, but give, give chances to people that like don't come to you through normal channels is probably my biggest advice to anyone. I'm a Craigslist barista.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
5: And you have to actively seek out diversity, especially when you look at the way that you have to be intentional exactly when you look at how um, neighborhoods are and how actually usually they're not diverse, like not to be the not to be uh, not to go back in time but there are there are historical reasons for that 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 are directly related to government mm-hmm. action mm-hmm. and and um, that means that your neighborhoods are mostly are are usually not well integrated even in large cities LA is a perfect example LA has every kind of person but 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 neighborhoods are purposefully segregated and people are purposefully segregating themselves so if you want a diverse coffee shop or if you especially if you open up a coffee shop in a neighborhood that doesn't resemble your neighborhood which lots of people do uh, because the rents are cheaper in, the, in those neighborhoods. <laughs> and so they'll open up a shop but then not do anything to purposefully engage and intentionally engage the community. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a lot of excuses that I've heard for that are, oh, well, I don't know how to do that. And you could probably Google how do you engage a community and, and get an answer. And not you specifically, but, like, uh, that might look like putting – uh, literally pap- papering community centers mm-hmm. with now hiring um, and not and also like getting rid of prerequisites that aren't important mm-hmm. so like don't necessarily look for people to have college degrees mm-hmm. um, don't look uh, don't look for people to have a prior barista experience mm-hmm. Um because think about who will have had opportunities to get access to training and have prior risk experience. Like you have to be very intentional about skipping barriers and getting rid of barriers that are not important. Um, and especially because there are large coffee companies that hire people with zero um, experience. Uh, Stumptown is, was one of them when I worked there. Uh, they just hired people that they thought were nice and friendly. Um, and one thing that you know everyone could do better was being intentional about having. Uh, there be more people of color but it's not because of the way things are have been structurally historically structured it's not just going to happen you're either intentional about it or it's not going to happen
7: thank you do mm-hmm. so we have you.
0: time for maybe one more question can I add something?
7: Yeah. oh yeah go ahead
0: okay. I'm
6: going to add one, one thing too oh.
5: <laughs> thank you guys for being here uh, oh, one, one moment sorry. go ahead
6: Okay, Okay, um, so there are uh, sites out there that will analyze job descriptions for you, the written ones, Mm -hmm. um, and they'll point out words that they think are um, unconsciously biased towards men. And these are awesome tools. Uh, But um, job descriptions in general, like words matter. Um, If your job description is something like, you need to be an expert and you need to be a go getter and um, conquer the world, or something like that. You know, like those really assertive, aggressive terms that are often masculized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to attract women to that job position, uh, or people of color who, who can't identify with those words. Um, and also, those ridiculous requirements of like, you have to be able to lift 50 pounds going up 20 flights of stairs. <laughs> Uh, could you not divide that into two or three trips? Like, do you really need that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just just thinking about just job descriptions. Uh, and that's not just in jobs. I think, like, representation in general and words that we use are really important.
5: Hi. Thank you guys for being here. Well, all of you for being here. Um... I'm Kendra, I'm from Philadelphia, and my question is mostly for those who wanted to be here but couldn't because of obligations, and it is, there are a lot of people who this is their first large-scale coffee event, and I know feel very discouraged by the majority of the attendees, which are white men. So do you have any advice to those first-time attendees for how to navigate shows like this and the coffee industry in general?
0: still navigating. (laughs) Well, how do you navigate
5: it, I guess?
2: I'd like to say my first uh, conference was 18 years ago, and uh, it was incredibly lonely. And I come here now, and I'm just laughing. So I guess we still got a whole lot of work to do. Um, But I guess, you know... You just find those people, and, and I, I'm happy to see champions now and people speaking out. And you know, you, you find people, and, and we all gravitate towards people that, that look like us or we have commonalities with. And so I think it has increased, um, but it's great to hear you say that um, because uh, it, after a while it gets numb to you, unfortunately, in order to exist.
4: Yeah, I, I, I think. There are people here who are – I know I'm personally here because I – as someone who oversees like 150 employees, I want to be a a role model and a mentor for people. So if there's anyone here who has had a hard time navigating this space – I am here, please come up to me. I am happy to talk to you. Um, there's actually quite a few people in this room who I know have come together in an online forum who we've kind of you know, found opportunities to share and commiserate and that has been such a nice thing to always have, to have other folks who get it and who are kind of on the same page as you. So um, we exist and we're here and we will just get bigger and stronger as we go.
5: Yeah, I feel the same way Liz does. It's really uh, important to me for people to have someone they feel like they can talk to. So I am that way for sure. If anybody um, is having trouble with that or um, has trouble with it in the industry in general, um, I really think it's important that people, that we can support each other in that way.
0: Thank you. Awesome. Thank you all so much. Thank you.
6: You've been listening to a
0: talk from the SCA Lectures podcast series. To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.scanews.coffee and subscribe to this lecture series. Thanks for listening.